0: Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast
1: is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show.
0: Today, I'm
2: speaking with a great Twitter follow, Stop Ironing Shirts. He retired at the early age of 36. When I first started following him on Twitter, he was not yet retired, but had the goal, as his handle suggests, of retiring and stop having to iron his dress shirts for work. He succeeded four years ago, and today I'm going to talk to him about his journey. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: So a little bit of background, what was your job prior to retiring?
0: Yeah. So my job prior to retiring, I spent 16 years working for a regional bank that became a very large bank by the time that I left. I started with the bank through a training program right out of college. And from there, I, I went and became a commercial lender, loaning money to small businesses and kind of worked my way up through the company over 16 years to larger and larger businesses, larger cities, and then eventually ran a commercial lending team before I left.
2: Cool. And I assume while you were there, you must have learned a lot about the banking industry, which we're going to get into this later, but I know that you are involved in bank stocks. So I assume that's where the interest and the uh, knowledge came from.
0: It it is. And I had the good fortune of going to Stony or the the industry's banking school that's predominantly community banks, even though I worked for a large bank. So I got to know a lot of community banks and know a lot more about them through that process. It's just... Fortunately or unfortunately, they weren't really investable until recently.
2: Hmm. So during your career, what was the inspiration that made you decide to pursue financial independence?
0: Well, I think if I get a little bit in my background, I was always kind of into finance and money. When I was growing up, I had parents who struggled with money, but we had a pretty large extended family, and I'd see other family members that didn't. So I made the connection pretty early on that basic things like having a job and not spending more that you make, kind of meant money became less of an issue versus what I would see up close, which was money was a big issue if you didn't have it. When I was a teenager, I started kind of making that connection. and was always kind of into money at that point.
2: Cool. So you were always into kind of financial independence and saving money. But what was like the fire that got lit that said, I'm going to actually aggressively pursue retiring early?
0: Yeah, I I remember that moment. You had a couple things in corporate life that weren't great, but I'd say 2013 was really our big turning point. I left college and got my first job in 2003. I've always been responsible with spending and with saving, but we were nine years in and the net worth has gone from zero to a little bit of money. But we kind of had a tough market there. And, you know, there were times where you'd invest, invest. And then in 2009, you're looking at your accounts and it's worth less than you put in. The market kind of grinded for nine years that I was investing. And then 2013 and 2014 were really the turning point. I mean, it had a little bit invested. And then the S&P turned around and returned 32% and 13% in back-to-back years. That point plus the savings, I'm sitting there looking at it. I'm in my early 30s, married and were close to having a million dollars.
2: That's excellent. So how did you stay motivated for that first decade of like 2003 to 2013 when the market was just basically going through t- some horrible bear markets and wasn't doing much? What and kept I mean, you um, motivated to keep Saving and keep pursuing it
0: I don't think it was easy because it was kind of a beating on all fronts. I mean you keep kept putting in the money in the market and it you know would go up go down, but wasn't great. We had bought a house on 90 percent financing in 2007 and then we were underwater on that house oh, wow. so I think it was more of the scarcity of remembering what it was like what it was like for my parents and growing up without money. You know, when you're sitting there with an underwater house or in an industry that has layoffs going on,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I was less concerned about investment returns and just making sure we saved money and put it away somewhere.
2: Yeah, that must have been brutal. I was working during that time and experienced a lot of that. And uh, I know seeing how my coworkers reacted to some of the uh, events that were happening, like I knew people who were like older than me who were in their 40s and were underwater in their mortgages and had a lot of debt. and didn't really have a lot saved up, and for me, it was like I don't want to wind up like that. That looks terrible. So, yeah, it was it was just a stressful time all around for anyone who had assets and was dealing with the market and the chaos and that was happening. It was definitely
0: stressful. And then in my day job, I, I was managing problem loans. So you'd have a lot of people who were done well, forty years old, they go and bought a business or got into residential home building, and then suddenly mm. their you know their entire industry evaporated overnight.
2: Yeah, it definitely gives you a whole new attitude about risk. Like I know when you do read about the FIRE community, a lot of the people are much younger. I don't really think they have that perspective of what 2008 was like and what it really feels like to go through an event like that where stocks are getting cut
0: in half and there's all this chaos happening. So, And the only bad job market a lot of them have seen was just getting their first job out of college. And it's been really easy since then.
2: Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. I mean, this job market today is amazing. Like, you have three percent unemployment. Work from home is widely accepted. Employers have to kind of have to bite the bullet and give a lot of perks that they probably wouldn't have normally given. And back in '08 and '09, it was just like, oh, I'm I'm happy to just have a job and be able to put
0: food on my table. <laughs> right. I mean, they were very direct in telling us that your paycheck is your bonus this year.
2: Yeah. It was a brutal time. You were thankful that you had that. The expectations really got clobbered in those few years. And then it lasted for such a long time. Like The job market was just lousy for probably six years, I would say.
0: Yeah. Job market was lousy for that that many years. Housing market was lousy. I mean, it was 2008 to 13 or 14 was a grind depending on where you were.
2: Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about the numbers a little bit. So while you were pursuing early retirement. So how much were you making? And um, ultimately, like, what kind of nest egg did you build up?
1: Yeah, I
0: would say my income was kind of in three tiers. My first five years working in the bank, I started at $34,000 a year and got my total compensation up to
1: Mm $80,000.
0: You know, it probably didn't accelerate as quickly because you were getting into that 2008, 2009 period. But once Mm -hmm. I had five years of experience, I earned between 80,000 and 125,000 over the next five years. So from that, plus my spouse was working, we were able to save up a good amount of money on that just by a function of only spending four, five, 6,000 a month when you're bringing in two times that. But then in my last five years, I started to see my... Total compensation melt up. The base salary didn't go up much, but I took some promotions. Those brought along better bonuses, higher mm-hmm. stock grants that we got. And I finished my last year just above 300000 all in.
2: Wow. So it sounds like you were really killing it at the end there. Was it hard to walk away from an income that high? Like I'm sure the temptation was strong to say, well, maybe I should just do this a few more years and build up some more money.
0: Definitely. The one more year syndrome that they talk about in the fire community is real. Mm -hmm. And when I go back and look at the numbers, we were really at that financial independence point, probably at the end of 2017. But, But I'd done the math and it was just overwhelmingly beneficial to work another 15, 16 months from that point.
2: Gotcha. And what was your um savings rate? I assume that it started out maybe a little bit lower and then increased over time. Um, where it start and where did it end? Yeah.
0: You know, it started out probably in the thirty-five, forty percent range. Mm-hmm. I would say starting out, that would be two thousand seven. So my, my wife was a veterinarian who was practicing. So her income ranged between fifty and seventy-five thousand in in the time she was working. You know, and I was started at 34 and got up to 80 in that same time period. So, you know, we were married couple, no kids, not a ton of expenses. So, we were able to save half when we got to the double income, no kids point in our life. Oh, when do, do you have you have kids now? We, we don't.
2: Oh, okay. So, you're still a dual income, well, I, you retired, Correct. but towards the, as you were pursuing this, you were dual income, no kids. Correct. Gotcha.
0: Cool. She left her job a few years before I left mine.
2: I see. It sounds like she was also in a pretty lucrative profession.
0: It was okay. I mean, the veterinarian profession, at least up until this time, it's kind of a tough profession where you end up with two and three times the student debt load that you do income. Oh, wow. When she graduated in 2007, those economics were like 100000 in student debt for a $50,000 a year job. Now, the economics are about double that new graduates come out with 200,000 plus in debt and can make 90 to 110,000 starting off.
2: Wow. And did you have any student loan debt?
0: Yeah, I had 10 or 12,000 in student loan debt and then she had about 100 from graduate school that we had to work down and pay off.
2: So that's amazing. So you were achieving financial independence at the same time as paying down a really massive amount of student loan
0: debt. Yeah. Again, that market that market action in 20 Thirteen and 2014 really helped helped us with that Mm -hmm. because after we got that 32% and 13% and we were predominantly invested in index funds, had a brokerage account, we were looking at all the numbers and said, it just doesn't make sense anymore to have this student loan debt hanging over our head. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, that was a very poor decision given that we're recording this in May of 2023 and it's been no payments for 38 months.
2: It must have felt great to pay off that loan.
0: It did. Yeah. So. It did. We saved a picture of the envelope being dropped in one of those blue post office boxes.
2: No, that's fantastic. Now, what's your attitude towards debt? So I know that there's a range of different perspectives here. So that you have like the Dave Ramsey point of view, which is that all debt is evil. And then I know a lot of the other fire people, they, they get a little bit more liberal with the leverage. What's your attitude towards
0: debt? I was always fine with debt while I was working since we've stopped working. I focus on risk more so than returns. Mm -hmm. I mean, So we bought a house and we bought it outright.
2: Gotcha. So you retired with no mortgage.
0: Correct. So we had a house with a mortgage when we retired and we're living in Texas. We sold that and were a renter for a few years and bought a house recently.
2: Gotcha. So I assume that you were in a um, a reasonable real estate market. You weren't in one of the red hot markets and uh, where you were in a place where homes were more affordable.
0: Uh, We moved to one, yeah. So let me take a step back. We've made no money on real estate over our career. We bought and sold four houses, and the net gains on all of those were zero. Gotcha. We sold in 2019, so we missed the recent run-up and just bought at the end of 2022.
2: Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people try to get that appreciation out of the real estate, but I think... The real muscle movement when you're trying to retire is more about getting it paid off so you eliminate that fixed cost of a mortgage.
0: Correct. When I look at my original FIRE numbers, it was, hey, if we can save a million five, a million six, then we get a free and clear house for three to four hundred thousand. And one point two million on a four percent rule says you still have forty eight thousand a year to live on.
1: Ooh,
2: what was the total size of the nest egg when when you retired?
0: It was between 1.8 and 1.9.
2: Wow. So you had the paid off house, you had the 1.9 million in investments. And like, what was your withdrawal strategy or do you use like a 4% rule?
0: Well, 1.9 was the total amount. And at that point, we sold our house and rented for a couple of years.
2: Oh, gotcha. Okay, cool.
0: Yeah. But now those numbers, you know, you adjust a bunch of stuff for inflation. And I don't want to give out exact numbers now, but it kind of looks the same. We have a free and clear house and have a nest egg that throws off. More than enough to live on on a four percent rule.
2: Gotcha. While you were doing all this, I mean, this is just an incredible story, and you've achieved something that's really amazing. So, how did you resist the urge to do lifestyle creep? Creep. So, you were in a pretty high pressure, high hours profession. Like there must have been a real temptation to like treat yourself and say like I want a really cool car or I want a bigger house or How'd you fight that?
0: Yeah, there were those temptations. I think there's house and car, the two really big ones until you get into meals out. And house-wise, we started valuing proximity. So after house number two, I valued proximity to the office over anything else. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with really small houses on expensive lots. Gotcha. There was some creep in lifestyle from a value of the house standpoint, but it wasn't an excessive house. We're talking three-bedroom houses, but on a lot in the kind of areas that they're tearing down and building seven-figure houses.
2: Gotcha. So
0: the structure was never really appealing as much as location and staying out of the car. And since I was only commuting for five to 10 minutes, the car never really became important. Mm. So I bought a truck in 2007 and kept it until 2021.
2: I'm in the same boat with commute times, so... I used to have a very long commute when I was younger and I I didn't really think it would be a big deal, but it really does start to weigh on you. And there is a real opportunity cost to the time that you spend on the road. I definitely um, align with your decision there to be close to work.
0: That was one of the most eye-opening fire articles I ever read. And it's Mr. Money's mustache has has an article called the hidden cost of the commute. Mm. And at the time I had a 30 to 40 minute commute in each direction and When I had an opportunity to change that, I did.
2: I vaguely remember that article, but what exactly does he say there um, are some of the hidden costs of the
0: commute? He talks about the direct cost. I mean, it's the direct cost of the car, gas, and the indirect opportunity cost of you can only do so much while you're in the car.
2: Yeah, and then there's the maintenance. I guess maintenance is a big part of it. And then just the depreciation on the vehicle is kind of a hidden cost people don't think about.
0: Right. But then just the hours that it's taking away from doing something else, because he also gets into the health cost of it. Like, well, if you live three miles from the office, you have alternate forms of commuting, depending on your job versus if you're 20 miles in a suburb, you have one option, which is drive that car.
2: Yeah. And then when you're sitting in a car, say you have like an hour long or hour and a half commute, you know, that's uh, that could be 10 hours a week on top of that. Then you get home. You've been sitting on your butt for an hour, not really doing anything physically productive. And then you probably don't really feel like cooking a Yeah, the convenience meal. cost of
0: food that comes with it is huge.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of stops at the McDonald's drive through that probably takes a toll. So, yeah, that's a good point about that cost.
0: Yeah, so I'd say that helped me the most with housing and transportation lifestyle. And then food, I was fortunate to have a job where I got to... Take customers out to lunch and dinners. So, the last thing I wanted to do on my own time was be sitting in a restaurant.
2: Oh, cool. So, you got your lunches in when you were taking clients out?
0: Correct. Breakfast, lunches, and an occasional dinner event with a client that was planning for me.
2: Nice. So, what were some other strategies you did to kind of keep your costs under control to try to minimize your expenses?
0: We always enjoyed traveling, but we were pretty reasonable on expenses, especially in the second half of our pursuit of financial independence we got more disciplined on making sure each each myself and my spouse we got two credit card signup bonuses a year so that offset our travel to the tune of 2000 to 2500 a year we like traveling during off seasons you know as bankers we get random holidays in february october november and we would mm-hmm. plan a lot of travel around that you know we realized over time we'd rather just rent a condo when we go somewhere because, again, if I'm going on vacation, the last thing I want to do is go sit in a restaurant. And if you go to a resort hotel, you're, that means three meals out eating at a restaurant. Right. Much easier to rent a condo, go to the grocery store the day you get there, and then you're completely free to explore.
2: How about like um, everyday costs? So did you guys eat out a lot? Did you do take out a lot or um, were you pretty good about mostly cooking at home? I think that's a pretty huge expense that adds up over time.
0: We got that out of our system after the first three or four years of living in a big city. Mm-hmm. We came from a more rural area of the Southeast and then moved to Atlanta. And we ate out a whole bunch for the first couple of years we were there. And then we've kind of been there and done that. And it wasn't something we valued.
1: Gotcha.
2: Cool. All right. So um, what was your investment strategy while you were pursuing financial independence? What was like uh, your allocation of you know, was-
0: stocks? Yeah, while I was pursuing financial independence, I was primarily in index funds. I would play around with individual stocks, but never in large enough amounts to where they were making a big impact. Mm -hmm. I think savings rate was, I try to tell people this, for the first million dollars, savings rate is way more impactful than what you choose to invest in. As long as you can get at least the market returned, plus a high savings rate, you'll get to your number. During the second half of that financial independence journey, I started getting a little more involved because once you have a good nest egg, risk really starts mattering. Mm -hmm. You have more to lose and you can't go and take risks that are going to wipe you out. And while I love index funds, they're very tilted towards large cap growth and you can have a decade where large cap growth can do nothing. Right. Or go negative while everything else just chugs along. One of the reasons I like talking to value stock geek. <laughs> you know, the only other thing I would say that was kind of unique is I did have a deferred compensation plan that the company offered. And that allowed me to defer a lot of money pre-tax. Oh, nice. And it was set up to where I could pick a high percentage. And then once my 401k filled up, it went into this secondary plan. And I have this secondary plan set up to where it pays out in monthly payments over 15 years. Gotcha. So it was yeah. really nice while I was at a higher tax rate to be able to put aside fifty, seventy-five, upwards of a hundred thousand dollars a year at the end. That would then be paid out monthly at a uh, much lower tax rate.
2: Very cool. And uh, yeah, I I agree that as you get more money, diversification becomes a lot more important because the um, fluctuations that you can see in the market or in a single asset class can be very difficult to deal with. So yeah, I think those principles of diversification are, become very important later on. Um, and I agree with you that they're less important early when you're just saving money. If you're just starting out and you've got $10,000 in investments, you know it doesn't really matter what it's invested in. It's more about how much money you're saving every year.
0: Right. I mean, you, you could go do thousands of hours of research on stocks over the first couple of years on a portfolio that size, and it really does nothing for you when you should have Gone and driven an Uber, just make more money.
2: Right. Yeah, I'm I'm 100% in agreement with that. So, how do you deal with volatility in the market? Like, how do you stay the course these days? Now that you have such a large amount of money, and um, you could start to see your previous salary could be an annual fluctuation in your portfolio. So, how how do you deal with that?
0: I mean, you go into this thinking, "Oh, I'll deal with it. I'll be fine." And then you see it actually happen, and it's a (laughs) fun moment. Yeah. I
1: mean, it's, you know, one,
0: I mean, you you have to know whatever you do. You can't panic sell at the bottom. And a year after I left my job, we're looking at end of February to March 22nd or so. And I have some screenshots. And when you're losing six figures in a day, Hmm. that can be a little unnerving. Right. I probably have a similar investment philosophy as you. And I was primarily invested in value then, which got hurt more Mm -hmm. because the tech led the recovery out of 2020 versus um value or more traditional stocks. You know, I saved a couple of screenshots. And when I've got a screenshot of losing $121,000 or $190,000 in a day, all the other oh. fluctuations at this point seem really small.
2: Oof that's rough (laughs) to see that happen in a portfolio. And yeah, you're right. Value had a terrible drawdown during that period. Small cap value is down
0: almost 50%. And I had a decent cash position going in. And a couple times before, hey, the market's down. Maybe I should buy more. Worked out really well. And if you were buying in late May, buying in late February or the first week in March, you just took cash and evaporated it by another 20%. Hmm. Some lessons that were learned out of that certainly make me handle volatility easier now.
2: Gotcha. And do you think your experiences in 2008 probably helped you when March 2020 came
1: around?
0: They did. I mean, I I remember watching December, January, March in that 2008, 2009, and people were saying it's never going to recover. And then that's probably the point in time where you should invest in it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, that's 100% true. Yeah, and I think that's something a lot of people miss when they look at like market history and you see these big drawdowns. I think people lose the perspective that it's not just the drawdown, stocks aren't just falling for no reason. Like there's always something very scary going on in the real world that's driving that and makes it even more tempting to
0: get out. Yeah, I mean, for that to be happening, something is going on to make the entire market or specific sector just uninvestable to a majority of people. Right. But fortunately, after that happened, 2021 was a really good year for everyone invested on the value side. And then 2022 wasn't that bad. If you avoided large cap growth in tech, 2022 was not an awful year in the market.
2: Yeah, it wasn't too bad. I mean, small cap value is down about 10% last year compared to over 20% for the market. Yeah, if you were in QQQ or ARK, then you just got uh, totally annihilated. So yeah, if you had to pivot the value, it helped.
0: I do always remember a um, my grandfather had invested a little bit of money back in 1999 in some unprofitable tech company and wiped out a chunk of his retirement. And that lesson always kind of set with me.
2: That's good. Yeah. Like a lot of people don't have that perspective of the tech bubble too. So I was fooling around with stocks back then as well. And uh, I learned a lot from that experience of seeing everybody claim that all of these hot new stocks were going to go to the moon and then seeing the whole thing collapse. It definitely left a pretty big impression on me.
0: It did. I mean, and people start talking about the new economy and getting away from the simple metric of gap earnings. Just know to be cautious. Yeah. Yeah.
2: On the other hand, it has kept me away from some major winners, but um, I think it's helped me more than it's hurt. Right. Yeah. Now that you're retired, what's your current
0: asset allocation strategy? So Right now, I'm almost 100% invested. I usually have some cash and a decent bond allocation lying around, but I have been moving that more into small cap value. Tend to stay invested. I like dividends, dividend stocks, the dividend index, and small cap value right now.
2: Oh, what are some of the vehicles that you use, like some of the ETFs that you use?
0: I use VIG, the Vanguard dividend ETF, mm-hmm. for my large cap but profitable company exposure. I invest with Fidelity, so I use their small cap mutual fund. Plus, I use iShares IJS for the small cap value exposure. Hmm. A little bit in international. I think international is one of those sectors where it's important to have an active manager versus just indexing it. Mm-hmm. So, Fidelity has a good low cost but actively managed fund that I use for international. Hmm. Have and, you
2: considered the Avantis funds? For the, um, they have some pretty interesting um, international value funds.
0: No, I haven't, but they're worth look, looking into.
2: Yeah, they're they're pretty
0: cool. And then then for large cap value and small cap value, also own Berkshire and Markel. Because I think those are large cap and small cap value funds that are wrapped inside an insurance company.
2: Those are solid picks. I know what you like about Berkshire. Everybody loves Berkshire. (laughs) But um, what do you like about Markel?
0: I think Markel is almost an identical business model to Berkshire, but they play in small cap companies. I've been exposed to a couple of um, Markel's wholly owned businesses. And they just buy, they buy incredible businesses in almost monopoly type industries. They've got some exposure to the building supply business. You know, I think we're going to continue to build houses in this country and we continue to have housing get older. So, I mean, I really like Markel and I think that Tom Gaynor and his team are some of the best small cap managers out there.
2: Yeah, I agree. I'm always impressed with him when I um, listen to him in interviews. I've listened to all of his interviews. Still not long the stock, but that may change pretty soon.
0: Yeah, I try Um, to tell everybody the thing about Markel stock is you buy one share and then you have to track its price to book value. And you'll get a pretty good idea over time of what's an attractive price to book value. Sometimes it'll trade for 1.5 times. Sometimes it'll trade for 1.2 and you'd rather be buying it at 1.2.
2: Much like Berkshire itself which trades in a pretty tight range of price-to-book values. And they are pursuing that Berkshire playbook where they're basically using the insurance float to fuel purchases of marketable securities. And then whole businesses and the businesses that they tend to purchase tend to be have pretty solid moats and um, are very profitable.
0: They do. And, And while you can't, it's difficult to just look at their earnings from quarter to quarter to analyze it you can look at three metrics and figure it out pretty quickly. You look at their combined ratio for the insurance business, their income off Markel Ventures, and then, then you look at their investment gain and losses. Right. And generally that Markel Ventures is just a cash producing engine.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Today I was running the numbers and I'm at 13% now invested in banks and bank preferred stock with all the chaos that's going on in the market.
2: Okay. So you've moved into, so you were avoiding the bank sector, but now you feel like there's opportunities there.
0: I've owned a good bit of Bank of America since 2019. But outside of that, I've not seen anything too terribly attractive in the bank sector until the past three and four months.
2: Okay. So yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about your bank investing. So what attracts you to investing in banks?
0: So banks are a and I'll tell you why I haven't invested in them heavily before and why they look attractive now. You know, banks are one of these businesses that when things go really well, they make about 15% return on equity. Maybe they'll make 17, 18, maybe they'll make 12, but their median earnings are about 15% return on book equity, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, for a decently run bank. The problem is, in order to get that 15% return on equity, you have to buy the bank at one times book value. Mm -hmm. But so many of these well run banks have been trading between 1.5 and 3.5 times book value. So your return profile changes to where you can't get that 15 anymore. You're looking at getting that 15 less the discount for overpaying. So maybe it's 12, maybe it's nine. But the problem with bank investing is, that 15 is the best you'll ever do. And then it comes with all these little tail risks that can try to wipe you to zero.
2: Gotcha. And so do you, are right now, the banks that you're investing in, are these smaller like regional banks?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm trying to, I thought I had my list in front of me. I'm investing in two different things. So right now, the big issue for banks is what are their liabilities costing? Mm -hmm. In general, higher rates are good for banks. But right now, rates have gone from 0% to 5% in the span of 13 months, and there are banks that were had their funding costs more sensitive. Uh, their funding costs were not going up. as Their funding costs went up too fast relative to how quick they could reprice all their assets, their loans, and their bond book.
2: Right. The inverted yield curve is usually pretty toxic for banks.
0: It it has been. And then even when they go and make new loans, you know, they can only get six and a half, seven percent on the new loans. But to get that incremental dollar of funding, they're paying five. Right. So what I like and what I've been looking for is, one, I've been looking for smaller banks that have hundred plus year old deposit franchises and just appear to be competently run. Mm. Because a hundred year old deposit franchise means that small bank has anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of their deposits that cost nothing. So right. even if the other half of that of their deposits cost five percent, their all-in cost of money is two and a half percent.
2: And they've probably survived many similar environments in the past of inverted yield curves and recessions and financial crises. So,
0: correct. You know, and even these banks that maybe mediocre, run, mediocrely run banks, their loan yield now is four point eight five percent. So I look at that and say, worst case scenario, they're still making a two and a half percent spread on their money at this one point in time and mm. oh by the way they're going to slowly be rolling off those loans and repricing them and get back to their historical spreads gotcha and i found a number of those banks that are trading for 78% of book value
2: Hmm. wow these are smaller these are smaller banks
0: yeah you can find that if you look for banks with asset sizes of less than 5 billion dollars and obviously i'm not going to give a bunch of specific names because these are all small but really you For anybody listening you look around your town and say what are the smaller banks and then you can pull up their investor relations and pretty quickly see what is total loan yield what is net interest margin what's their tangible book value per share which they disclose in their press releases and then you look at percent of non-interest bearing deposits and it's just there are so many people that don't want to be invested in these banks They have large retail shareholder bases, so they may be 60-70% owned by people in the community who just don't follow the stock. So that means when people do want out, there's just no buyers.
2: Right. So it's Um, driven
0: some pretty big discounts in these stocks.
2: Yeah, it, it definitely looks like it's gotten attractive. I guess that the open question right now for the smaller banks would be, if we're going to have a recession, how serious that recession could be. Is that something that worries you at all?
0: To an extent. Twice in my career, I worked in college towns. So one thing that's attractive to me is buying these community banks that are headquartered in the same cities as large state colleges. Mm -hmm. Because generally, if you're taking deposits and you're loaning them out on a fourplex right next to a university or the downtown building that houses the student bar, they're still going to be okay, especially if you're in the kind of towns that have a division one sports program.
2: That's a good point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, The whole narrative about college dying and enrollment going down, you kind of see there are winners and losers in that. And generally, if you're the number one, number two college in a state, you've got a division one program, those schools are seeing all-time highs on applications. So I just kind of look for some recession resistant uh, communities.
2: That makes a lot of sense. And plus, if you're sticking to those smaller banks, you're not dealing with a lot of dangers lurking that you don't that aren't revealed in like the 10K. Like you're not doing anything with trading. They're not doing any weird things with derivatives. They're just taking deposits and loaning money. Right.
0: Right. And the joke about available for sale versus held to maturity. I mean, these small banks don't play the held to maturity game that got the First Republic in trouble. I mean, the smaller down the spectrum you get on banks, the less of them that even use the held to maturity designation. So the other thing that's attractive is you can buy some of these banks right around book value, and then you can see that they've got 20, 30, 50% embedded gain in their equity just by function of rolling through their bond book. So I mean, you're picking up some pretty significant value gains every single quarter on these just by function of them working through that duration.
2: That is pretty cool. So you have written about the recent banking troubles that we've seen. So what's your perspective, for instance, on what happened to Silicon Valley Bank?
0: So I think Silicon Valley Bank was unique in that they did a bunch of loans that nobody else would do. I mean, there aren't really other banks that were making loans to unprofitable tech companies, giving lines of credit to VC firms mm-hmm. with just the startup company stock pledges as collateral. And then turning around, doubling down on that by loaning to founders. Right. That was a business that was very unique. And then I was kind of surprised that the venture capital community turned around and ran their own bank. I, mean, <laughs> I would have expected a group that's supposedly that smart to all come together when Silicon Valley Bank had their offering and say, guys, if you don't buy into this offering, there are consequences that are going to involve your industry not getting credit.
2: Well, I maybe they did it on purpose to engineer or run on the bank so they knew that everyone would just get bailed out rather than... Try to try to keep the bank running effectively. It it almost seems like it was they engineered it to happen this
0: way. I mean, it it seems like it. But if if the venture capitalists would have thought through it, it's it's a real challenge because there are other banks who've kind of gone in and out of that space to loan to these companies. But nobody's been as consistent at it as Silicon Valley Bank. Right. And then First Republic was just a massive mismatch of how they were funded versus the loans they were putting out. I mean, I think there's a lot of blame to go around in that, and the San Francisco Fed doesn't look very good having that failure come out underneath them because, I mean, the Fed telegraphed that rates were going to go up for six months before they did it and then slowly raised rates up since then, and this all happened while First Republic did not have a chief risk officer. Wow. I just, you know, how you can get that upside down that quickly And your assets versus your liability is just unfathomable.
2: Yeah. I I don't really understand why more people weren't saying things about it. There were some short sellers that had some interesting perspectives on it, but it seems to have kind of taken the banking community by surprise. And then when you take a look at the facts, it seems like this was almost destined to become a problem.
0: Yeah. And I personally expected them to just let the bank zombie through their equity in time and let that fix the problem, but You know, all the depositors fled and then the Fed had to make a choice. And I owned a little bit in the First Republic preferred stock thinking they're going to be allowed to zombie through this issue a bunch of stock and dilute their commons, but they'll be allowed to survive. And they certainly weren't.
2: Hmm, Right. Now, um, how do you think about the Fed's handling of it? Do you think that they handled it in a competent way?
0: I think they've handled the banking side of it as best they can. And I love your jokes about blaming the Fed for stuff, especially uh, investment <laughs> underperformance. They're incredible, by the way.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a common theme in the investment world. If you can find anybody to blame but yourself, you'll blame, right. <laughs> you'll blame it.
0: <laughs> but but I, mean, I certainly think in hindsight, everyone's going to look back at what happened and say, you know, by the third quarter of 2021, the Fed should have started inching rates up and they should have stopped buying mortgage-backed securities. Mm-hmm. It was the last six months of both a 0% short-term rate and then manipulating your long-term yields down like they did has just created a bunch of consequences that I think are, I mean, it's just going to take a long time to work out. I mean, that last six months of the housing market being juiced like it was, you know, that last six months of all the banks and all the fixed income investors having their long-term yields driven down to sub three. Right. I mean, I mean and just the number of people that got mortgages below 3%, that's a massive amount of stimulus for the economy that just isn't easy to pull out.
2: Right. And then on top of that, you had a ton of physical stimulus. So you had everything that the Fed was doing. Which they probably didn't do for too long a period of time. Then the federal government, not only did they do the um, aid during COVID, which was, I'm sure was, I think a good case can be made that that was necessary. But then there was a huge stimulus bill in early 2021, which, which was probably overkill.
0: Yeah. I mean, you see first bill probably okay. And then you get to the second and third and you're kind of scratching your head.
2: Yeah. Like, what are you guys thinking? Like, un- I mean, I think by January, 2021, unemployment had already pretty much normalized. We were down to 6% or so. So at that point we probably should have been taking stimulus out of the system instead of piling more on.
0: Right. And then you look at what happened with First Republic. I mean, here's a bank whose deposits went up 50% in the span of, nine or 12 months and then just unfortunately they did what banks do with those deposits they think they'll be around forever and they invest them in five-year bonds
2: right and then on top of that you probably had some good signs that um, things were awry when so many wild things were going on with really speculative assets like you saw um, all the huge like profitless tech companies were going bonkers you saw the meme stock craze you saw crypto going nuts like it seemed like we're in a really speculative risk-on environment.
0: And if you look at it, that's really the core of what killed Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank. I mean, they each had their deposit bases grow by 50%. And that was funded by all of the SPAC money and all of the tech money that was, you know, turned out to be temporary.
1: Mm. You know, yeah, you that's true. With, well,
0: I mean, and there were lots of things they should have done better, but at the end of the day, they were a bank being a bank. They took deposits, they bought five-ish year assets, and then those deposits fled out and the assets were worth 60, 70 cents on the dollar.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder, like, do you think there are parallels? I was thinking about what happened to Texas banks during the oil boom of like the late 70s, early 80s, and they had a big bust. Do you think there are any parallels to that like having your whole depositor base in a single industry and then having that industry go through a serious uh problem do you think there are any parallels there
0: Yeah absolutely I mean I think this is a California bank issue I mean Signature Bank out of New York was kind of an overnight execution due to some crypto issues that they had but you know that bank didn't have the same problems with deposits fleeing that Silicon Valley and First Republic had and now you kind of see the secondary issues right now being talked about with Western Alliance and Pacific West.
2: So do you think that the problems in the banking sector are pretty much contained to that tech sector? It sounds like you don't think it'll spread through the rest of the system.
0: No, I don't think it'll spread through the rest of the system. I think the one issue that is contagious is I wouldn't want to be a bank out there that needs to raise capital right now. Mm hmm. So I think that will keep valuations on all banks down for a while, right? But as long as you don't get stuck with that one bank that needs capital at that point in time,
2: gotcha. Yeah, that makes. That's sense. the
0: real risk. It's like two thousand, late two thousand eight, two thousand nine. You had really good banks in the southeast that had to do massively dilutive share issuances,
2: right? Right,
0: and that's yeah. a bad tail risk in investing in banks.
1: Yeah,
2: it's definitely something where a lot can go wrong. And I feel like it's it's an area where you really need to be a good analyst. You really need to really understand what you're owning to make sure that you're in line with the right management, that you're in a bank that is um, safer than your typical bank. So you definitely need to do your homework there, I think.
0: Yeah. The last thing, when you come back to my bank stock portfolio. So, I mean, on the common stock side, I own some Bank of America and own a number of banks that are smaller than $5 billion. Then kind of in that $5 billion in asset bank to to all the regional banks, I've been buying up a lot of their preferred stocks.
2: Gotcha. Buffett style.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so there are some preferred stocks right now where what I personally like to do is I look for the lowest fixed rate coupon. So a lot of these banks will have a 2021 or 2019 preferred stock issuance that pays a 4.5% yield on a $25 par value. Mm Mm-hmm. And now that market yield is eight and a half. You can buy those stocks in the $12 to $14 range. You get an eight plus percent yield today. And then when the credit risk subsides or rates come back down, you also get the appreciation as it moves back closer to par.
2: Nice. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense.
0: I feel really confident being in the preferred stack, stack in all these banks because in 2008, the likes of a Regions Financial or a Sun Trust. They didn't fail, but they had to do dilutive share issuances. That didn't affect the preferred stockholders at all. Yeah,
2: that's a good way to mitigate some risks. So what are some of the um, research tools that you use to research these banks?
0: I'm primarily using, I'll pull their 10K, 10K, their proxy report that will tell you a lot about the bank, who's running it, how they're governed. Look at their earnings release. The amount of data that they'll give you in the tables varies from bank to bank. And then the FDIC has a report called the call report. And the FDIC call report is published every quarter on the thirtieth, 30 days after the quarter ends. And that gives a lot of detail around what's really important right now, which is how long is their bond book? What's their bond book duration look like? How often do their loans reprice?
1: Kind of
2: cool.
0: So I like all of those tools, especially when I'm looking at the common stock of sub $5 billion banks.
2: Yeah. How about um, screeners? Do you have any screening tools that you use to find these banks that are attractively valued?
0: I don't. No? Since I worked in the industry, I tend to only look up banks that I was partially familiar with because I've worked in that area.
2: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense.
0: And generally, you know, in these banks post 2008, you've got some survivorship bias. So if the institution survived through 2008 and the people who work there survived in the industry... You have people that are probably mostly competent in the credit risk that they're taking. Plus, it's a tougher regulatory environment after 2008. They're just not the same level of commercial real estate risk being taken inside the banks that were being taken in 2007.
2: Right. Actually, speaking of commercial real estate, do you worry about that as a risk to the banks at all, where it seems like commercial real estate might be entering some period of secular decline with more work from home? Is that something that worries you?
0: It is a risk. So I do a little bit of my side hustle now is in commercial real estate and on the debt side of that. Mm-hmm. But say I'm worried about two areas of commercial real estate. I'm worried about central business district office. We're talking four story plus buildings with friction and parking. And I'm worried about multifamily, specifically Sunbelt multifamily. I think those are two areas that are in for a lot of pain.
2: Why does Sunbelt multifamily worry you?
0: It worries me because the pricing on it got really frothy, mm. and it's become so easy to raise money for that. And through retail investors, through syndication structures, there's an absorbent amount of construction going on in that space. Gotcha. And it's, and it's specifically going on in cities where you can build in all four directions. If you're an apartment investor in New York, in New York Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., you're probably fine. Right. But you would not want to be in Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, a second-tier market in Florida where they can just build another 2,000-unit complex along I-95.
2: Right, and you don't have the attractive economics you would have in the bigger cities.
0: Right. And generally, when you know, I've also seen a stat that shows occupants per household decline during COVID. I think that kind of comes back. You have a lot of 20-somethings that opted not to have a roommate. Right, because they were getting
2: an extra $600 a month. So,
0: 40 million people don't have student loans right now. That gives them more capacity to rent bigger places. There's just a lot of headwinds that start with valuation and then get into macro things that can hurt that. Right. And I think the majority of that risk is in non-bank lenders you have a couple of mortgage REITs that had very big bridge products where their goal was to finance the construction and stabilization in order to roll the permanent financing off to Fannie Mae or Freddie
1: Mac.
2: Gotcha. So um, I'm interested, you you mentioned your side hustle. Do you want to, you do work a little bit in retirement. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I like, like joking that, you know, when you when you tell somebody you're financially independent, early retired, I would get these questions at work that would say, does this mean you're never going to make another dollar again? <laughs> well, you know, that's a really tough thing to predict in the future. I spent my first three years, which was really one of those people where someone would ask, what are you going to do? Go to the beach all day? And I would answer, yes. Or, let, me, <laughs> let me try that.
2: <laughs> See how that goes.
0: Yeah And I did that and I did that for a while. Over time, you'd, I'd be approached with random projects, and there would be ways that I would make five to $10,000 in a year that was just mentally stimulating work. Mm. And then a little over a year ago, one thing led to another on a project that I was working. And now I broker a few commercial real estate loans a year, and I get gotcha. to pick and choose the people I work with. They're 90 to 120-day projects, but long-term, it generates about one-sixth of the income I was making at work for. Sixth or less of the obligation.
2: Right. And do you find this work a lot more fulfilling than your previous career?
0: I do. And it's more about the just the mental stimulation from it. I enjoy solving the puzzle of putting a deal together. Right. And you have to move the borrower to one spot. You need to move a lender to another spot. And then there's all this stuff that comes up in the process where years of experience of seeing that before helps me solve that puzzle. Cool. I really well, enjoy that. And had I known that we're coming in, I could have quit my job a long time ago.
2: Right. And I've heard people in the who have fired early, they've talked about that, where it's not necessarily like they give up on work, but they find more stimulating work now that they have the freedom to
0: pursue it. Correct. And I enjoyed my old profession. I just didn't enjoy 80% of the stuff that came along with working inside a large company in order to do it.
2: Yeah, it's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of politics. Um, it's nice to get away from that. And like even something you like, you can really overdo it. Like I like cheeseburgers, but I wouldn't want to eat fifty of them in one sitting. It will hurt. Right. <laughs> it's a it can, work can be pretty similar to that. Where uh, yeah, you might like this, but it's just like the nonstop onslaught of it is not enjoyable.
0: Yeah, and then coming back to the what type of commercial real estate is good and bad from and I mean. Everyone talks about office being dead, but I have a friend who's a dentist in Colorado that's trying to get 2,500 square feet for his practice, and it's near impossible.
2: Mm. Wow. I think it's probably overblown that the commercial space is dead. I I definitely agree with you there. And even if we do shift to more work from home, it's not going to be 100%. Like you're going to have, you know, most people are are at least going to probably have a hybrid schedule. So you're definitely going to have a need for some office space. It might be different. It might not be what it was in 2019, but it's definitely not dead.
0: Right. I mean, I have a friend that goes and takes, um, they take call centers. It's a completely dead type of real estate now, since call centers can be done remote.
2: Mm, Okay.
0: Call centers have 16, 17, 18 foot ceilings, good parking. They go and take the building and chop it up into 20 industrial suites. Oh, wow. Okay. There's always some way to um, adapt to the changing circumstances. Yeah, for the most part, as long as you're not a four-plus-story office building inside a place that's difficult to park.
2: Right, right. Yeah. And I I think
0: that real estate will be challenged for a long time. And it's mainly pension funds that own that real estate.
2: Gotcha. Before we wrap up, I have one last question. So how has retirement benefited your life?
0: Greatly. One of the main drivers to do it was location independence. So we've had that since 2019, no longer have to live in a big city, initially moved to the coast of South Carolina. And now I live on the East coast of Florida. Mm. Being able to pick where we live was number one. Second is just complete control of my time. When I, mean, mm. I wake up every day and get to pick what I do. I have a rule that I don't have more than one scheduled appointment in a day. It's something that's just very difficult and difficult to, I mean, different and difficult to describe because you're born, you have parents, you go to school, then you immediately go from school to work and you get decades of programming of having another adult tell you what to do and where to be mm. all day, every day.
1: And, and now that's over.
0: Yeah. Getting out of that cycle was six. I mean, the first six months was just pinch me. I can't believe this is real. Mm then you go through kind of the process of this is really weird. And then you accept it. And I just love control of my time.
2: Well, that's so cool. Well, congratulations to you on uh, achieving this incredible thing. sounds like you definitely were very intentional and you really worked hard towards it. So a hundred percent congratulations on on achieving this.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And hopefully you'll be joining the group soon.
2: I'm trying my best. (laughs) Do you have any um, last thoughts, last things you wanted to point out to the audience?
0: No, I I think you kind of asked it on that last question. I mean, control of your time is really what financial independence is about.
2: Awesome. And uh, what are the best ways to reach you and learn about you?
0: Yeah, best ways on Twitter. I'm at Stop Ironing Shirts. I have a little semi-dormant blog that's at the same name. But reach out to me on Twitter, follow me, and you'll see me interacting with you back and forth on stock ideas.
2: Awesome. Well,
0: thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to today's podcast.
0: For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.